Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Shout out to another guy, a very cool cat, uh, who is, in fact, following up on a pop quiz for our Ridiculous Historians tuning in earlier this week. Calvin Coolidge was not, in fact, the basis of Calvinism. There are there are a lot of people named Calvin in the world. Noel, you pointed out Calvin Klein. You're Noel Brown. I'm Ben Bullen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but but the, out of all the U.S. presidents named Calvin, this guy is automatically the coolest. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And as of the recording of this podcast, uh, 45 individual human people have held the position of president of these United States. And Max pointed out that there might be some uh, persnickety listeners that would say, hey, Max, what's the deal? There have been 46 presidents. You have to remember, fair listeners, that Grover Cleveland was both the 22nd and the 24th presidents. Mm-hmm. And there Max are with the facts. Yeah, there we go. And there were a lot of uh, also rants in POTUS history. Uh, that's just the acronym president of the United States. Uh, one one person who gets a lot of heat is a president named Warren G. Harding. Hang on, Ben. You might be saying, why are we talking about Harding? You just made such a big deal about a president named Calvin. Well, that's because Warren G. Harding. Warren uh, G.? Warren G. Was he, was he a regulator? Mm-hmm. Yep. He's the first one. Warren G. 
gets elected president. We're abbreviating a lot of this. Here's what you need to know. Warren G becomes president. He is unfortunately unable to complete his term of office. He passes away while he's president in 1923. And this means that his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, automatically becomes commander-in-chief, the 30th president in the history of the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, I love credit where it's due. I love shouting out our research associates. Uh, credit to Max Williams for this beautiful turn of phrase here. What would ensue would arguably be the calmest, boringest presidency <laughs> in the history of America, but also somehow the most hilarious. So and ridiculous, dare we say. So it's very important to shout out our research associates. And in today's episode, we're going to dive into the history of a guy who had a street name as president, Silent Cal. And this is not like uh, uh, one of the classic um, opposite day nicknames, uh, like Little John, uh, and, and not not the rapper, but the the, the member of the Robin Hood Mary Band, mm. um, or you know what was it? There was actually someone in history. Uh, I know what it was. It was in Skyrim. There is an orphanage in Riften, I believe, that is run by this sort of uh, Miss Hannigan type figure. Oh right, and I can't remember her name, but the, when you talk to one of the NPCs, um, when you go in and hear her berating the the children and saying how you got a snipes will never be uh, adopted ever you're mine and um, they say the the nice kind lady that works there tells you uh, yeah people around town call her uh, kind margaret or something Grilla so the, the kind Grilla that's the, the one and when you murder kinds. her people hey, now, celebrate I gotten there yet. spoiler it's, it's an option. It's certainly it's the on the first table. first mention of the Dark Brotherhood it's, it's, it's also just, I haven't gotten to the mention world yet, game I did immediately want to murder her but Silent Cal was, in fact, quite a laconic figure, the one that definitely wouldn't talk unless he had something to say. Favorite, uh, mentioned this on the on the air in a previous episode, so got to give credit where it's due. My favorite Calvin Coolidge anecdote is one time someone came up to him and said, because he's so famously taciturn, they came up to him and said, I bet I could get three words out of you. And our buddy Cal looked around, looked at the person, and then said, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, game, yeah. set, match, match, whatever. Yeah, Calvin, what a guy. Let's um, learn he, more about him, though. Let's do it. David Greenberg, writer of Calvin Coolidge, Life Before the Presidency um, uh, for the University of Virginia's Miller Center, had this to say. Coolidge was born John Calvin Coolidge Jr. on July 4th, 1872 in Plymouth, Notch, Vermont. He grew up helping his storekeeper father tend to the accounts, selling apples and doing other chores around the store at home on the family farm. As a boy, Coolidge had little ambition in life beyond hoping to follow his father as a good, honest, small-town merchant. In the, uh, in the original course of research here, I had initially misread that, that passage as Calvin Coolidge grew up helping his storekeeper father to tend apples and sell accounts, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, sketchy. Selling it. Well, maybe yeah, not. You know, yeah, but like for that. the time. Uh, so anyway, yeah, let's, let's learn about uh, the paterfamilias here. The senior Coolidge is a kind of hard-nosed guy. He's a pillar of the community, upstanding dude, 
probably not a ton of fun at parties, but he's also active in local government. He's in That's the right. Ver Vermont House of Representatives. He serves a term in the Senate of Vermont. And he also, he's one of those guys who was continually in local office, like one of my kind of sketchy uncles. Sorry, Uncle Sam. Isn't Bernie Sanders from Vermont? Isn't that his whole deal? Sanders, yeah, Sanders is a Vermont guy. Uh, it, it just strikes me as as a place that breeds level-headed individuals. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe. Know? It's uh, it's beautiful in autumn. Uh, go if you get a chance. People drive up there just to see the leaves. So everybody says, all right, this guy, Coolidge, uh, is he, he's not a wild Coolidge man. Coolidge the Elder, right? Coolidge the Elder, paterfamilias again. He's not a wild man. You know, you see some years he's the peace officer, some years he's the tax collector, but he is good at his job. He's good at running his store. He's thrifty. Uh, he's also a farmer and he's got this sort of solidity to him. He is an anchor for the town and he's committed to public service. And this is something that we know young Calvin aspired to. He really looked up to his father on many levels. Yeah, for sure. And he also appreciated how good he was with money. And I love how uh, David Greenberg <laughs> describes um, the younger Coolidge uh, in terms of his academic pursuits. He described him as a fair to average student in the Plymouth Elementary School. Um, and he did manage to make good enough grades to get into Amherst College, uh, which was considered, you know, uh, prestigious at the time. So he must have worked hard because if, if he's considering him a fair to average student, and he's getting into a prestigious university, that probably means he had to bust his butt to like keep those grades up and that it was important to him. He wasn't just naturally uh, a whiz, you know, in school. Sure, yeah. He is not necessarily the most precocious student, but he does understand the value of study and hard work. Uh, he gets excellent grades in his last two years at Amherst College. He graduates with honors, in fact, cum laude, and he becomes a member of the Republican Club and the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity. He also gets uh, <clears throat> he also gets known for his dry wit. Uh, and, and I love that he was lauded for his public speaking skills. Yeah, right. He actually got the uh, junior prize in oratory competitions, which is just like, who is the best at talking in front of more than four people? Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, when you think about his reputation as being somewhat taciturn, it is kind of funny that he was the one who was uh, brought up to host sort of like a roast kind of situation mm -hmm. of the uh, the graduating class. I just, I don't know. I couldn't possibly even attempt to do it. I'm just not funny enough. But I would love to see a sketch where someone did like a stand-up comedy set presented by Calvin Coolidge. Uh, it'd probably be something along the lines of like Joe Para, you know? Very monotone, kind of mellow, kind of string of dad jokes. I'm just picturing this. I don't know. He he also, uh, in addition to that, uh, and obviously that's a pitch for his upcoming podcast, uh, he also got first prize for his essay, The Principles Fought For in the American Revolution. He eventually goes to Northampton, Massachusetts, where he reads law in a law firm. He passes the bar in the summer of 1897. One big thing about the United States versus a lot of other powerful countries is that Many U.S. presidents have their background in the world of law, in the world of litigation. You can look at other countries where many leaders have their background in engineering. 
stuff like that. It's just, it's a cultural fun fact. He opens a law office. And if you own a law office in the late 1800s, guess what? You also participate in local politics. And that's what Calvin does following, I would argue, in his father's footsteps. And Coolidge's um, sort of ascension into political life uh, was very measured, and and it was just kind of like slow and steady wins the race. Um, and around 1900, he started to do some work uh, with the local Republican club um, in Northampton, uh, and this um, ultimately led to him getting a place on the city council. So. In his ascension, he becomes lieutenant governor in 1916. He holds that role for two years, uh, and then he gets some national press because he runs for the position of governor of Massachusetts, and he barely wins. He just edges out the Democratic candidate, Richard H. Long. And so now, the eyes of the world and probably people in Congress are upon him. Uh, and this this is fortuitous timing because the Republican Party, as we know, returns to power at the end of World War One. And then also he uh, <clears throat> he does some things that remain controversial to some. He gets a lot of press across the nation when he calls on the National Guard of Massachusetts to break a strike by the Boston City Police. And then he says, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. Ooh, we don't like that. <laughs> That's uh, not great. Um, this was seen historically, uh, you know, upon further analysis as something of a reactionary move. Um, but it was actually pretty popular at the time because labor uh, sentiment, pro-labor sentiment was not necessarily what it is today. I mean, I guess it's still a little bit complicated for some people, but at the time it certainly wasn't, you know, considered like the position of the, you know, moral individual, the moral citizen that, that workers deserve to be treated with respect. And it got him some pretty serious support. I do want to jump in here though and say like, there was actually like extensive writing that I found while researching this that said Coolidge kind of regretted doing this in the future. Cause he was a, despite like, you know, he was a Republican. He was a fiscal conservative, but he was actually a pretty progressive dude. And he would look back and like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But because it's like, you know, the cops are striking, but also, you know, you shouldn't send the National Guard in to break a strike. Well, yeah, I mean, he, 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 there was a sense, I think maybe it wasn't so much about like the public at large being anti-labor, but the results of these types of strikes uh, were lawlessness, or at least were seen as lawlessness. And I think the general population was like looking at strikes through that lens, right? Exactly. And, you know, despite this, overall, he is pursuing a pretty progressive agenda for a uh, politician of his stature at the time. He says, look, if you're a public employee, we know the cost of living is rising. We've got to pay you what you're worth. Uh, if you are a child who is working, uh, then you shouldn't work more than 48 hours which we uh, a week, which we know sounds terrible now, but that was actually, that was a really good move on his part. Uh, he also did, by the way, limit the work week for women in Massachusetts. He said, he said, there's too many billboards. There's too much advertising. Let's calm that down. <laughs> people liked it on both, both sides of the political aisle. People were like, he gets it. 
there's a little something for everybody, you know, in, in the kind of stuff he's doing. And so he continued to advance in local politics and eventually went on to marry uh, Grace Anna Goodhue. Um, that was on October 4th of 1905 at her parents' house in Burlington, Vermont. And she was also uh, a graduate of uh, higher education, the University of Vermont, um, a Phi Beta Kappa member, um, and was a teacher at the Clark Institute for the Deaf uh, in Northampton. Yeah, and they've got a nice meet cute. Yeah, I, I think it's good cute. for a rom com. So, Max, if we could get some, uh, we get some rom com music. I leave it to you, sir. Uh, so, Coolidge gets. Grace's attention <laughs> one one morning because uh, she is walking through town in Northampton and he was living in a boarding house at the time and she walks through the street. She happens to look up and she sees an open window where there's this guy standing in his underwear, shaving and wearing a hat. Was Hot. it a baseball cap? We Bro. don't know at this time glistening, you know, with shaving cream. It reminds me of, like, the trope of, like, the sexy, bare-chested construction worker with a six-pack drinking a Diet Coke on a roof, but only way nerdier and schlubbier and uh, and less sexy. I also think it's interesting that we don't know what part of his body he was shaving. I mean, history wants us to assume it was his face. I'm going to come clean on something, y'all. I once, when I was younger, I don't know why, shaved my right uh, thigh, Mm -hmm. uh, or rather uh, calf, and I swear to you, the hair has never grown back to this day. A likely story. Oh, that's cool, man. I mean, swimmers, hey, swimmers are some of the most physically fit people around, and they shave all the time. They got to get rid of the friction. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. 
Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it wasn't love at first sight. She thought he looked like a cartoon. And then she guffawed. This was not a coquettish, <laughs> cover the mouth kind of thing. This was like, <laughs> Are you okay? Did you do something down and, the wrong path? And uh, uh, she guffawed, as I was saying, and she laughed long and loud enough for him to notice her. And then she turned away. And he later, like, when they talk about this later, because they have a long relationship, when they talk about this later, he uh, he tries to justify it. And he says, well, I wear a hat when I'm shaving because I get to keep my hair out of my eyes. That's, I don't, re- that's I don't, respectable. Yeah. I, I'll buy that. Um, he, he, I do love this, though. Whenever you hear it, I've got a, a couple of friends who, uh, very similar story. Um, he said, uh, I am going to be married to you one day. Um, I guess that was him actually proposing. That was like but, the um, actual thing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe it's just a little different, but as a couple of dear friends of mine who I've known for a long time, um, who I knew separately, uh, one of them um, said uh, once, I'm going to marry that girl. And, uh, and he definitely did, which is so romantic. I can't so understand romantic. it. And, and Grace really dug this Calvin Coolidge vibe, just like the populace of Massachusetts. She immediately said something to the effect of, I imagine you have mistaken that for a proposal, but yeah, dude, I'm in. (laughs) Oh, Calvin, (laughs) you rogue. (laughs) So they have a kid, they have John in 1906, and then in 1908, they have Calvin Jr. The whole time, by the way, our buddy Calvin Coolidge is pursuing his career in politics. And as we know, uh, he reaches some rarefied heights. He does. And it all really starts with his attending uh, the Republican National Convention in Chicago as the state's favorite candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. That's in 1920. Um, He only got 34 votes on the first ballot. um, But then there was some, you know, how backroom deals, especially back in the early days of politics, were really the thing that elevated. Who who am I kidding? Of course, it's still that way today. What? what, (laughs) Come on. I don't don't have any illusions. Um, But there were some of these deals going on that uh, helped ensure that Warren G. Harding was in fact nominated. We already talked about Warren G. Y'all remember what happened with him? He regulated. He did. He got regulated. Um, Coolidge uh, wasn't initially part of the conversation to be his running mate. Um, they were hoping for a guy by the name of Irving Lindroot. 
Classic. of Wisconsin. Who Senator, we all, who we the all right know. honorable Senator Irving Linroot. I'm sure we all remember that name, right? Uh, Definitely. Linroot for life. Um, and, and Coolidge name did get, Coolidge's name rather, did get dropped into the ring. Um, and then there was some support that rallied around him uh, from some delegates that were sort of, I think kind of almost, uh, I guess, protesting in a way. Like, yeah, it was more like they were voting against Len Root. That's right. And that's it, right. In the larger context, uh, shout out to our friends at Encyclopedia Britannica. In the larger context, Calvin just keeps lucking out because he's on the ticket now, as you said. And the 1920 election is really a question for America. And the question is, do you or do you not like President Woodrow Wilson? We know our pal Max doesn't like Woodrow Wilson because he gave Woodrow Wilson the nickname Dumb Dick. Woodrow Wilson is the f***ing worst. Is you is or is you ain't my constituency. Well, he's no Franklin Pierce, but a few people Uh, In my book. I mean, he resegregated the national government. He sure did. And he basically murdered Eugene V. Debs. So, yeah. Oh, also, uh, oh, Andrew Jackson as well. Look, the presidents aren't perfect, nor is the Most of them are generally pretty bad. If you actually go hold them up. Like, the ones in the last hundred plus years look a lot better when you go back before 1900. You gotta see, uh, there's a great stand-up comic who's really making a name for himself, Shane Gillis. You gotta see his bit on George Washington. It's amazing. And visiting the the Washington Museum. Anyway, so people aren't surprised that Harding wins the election pretty easily. Uh, And part of the reason he wins this pretty easily, to your point, Max, is because Eugene V. Debs is imprisoned at the time. (laughs) And uh, and the status quo is against them. So Republicans are like, look, our boy Harding and Calvin, we guess, they win. And this means that we can reverse all of the policies Woodrow Wilson made in the U.S. And we can also get rid of all the international overtures he made across the world. I love that about government changing hands where it's like, hey, let's do everything we can to wipe out what the last people did. Psych. Yeah, yeah, other countries sort of, love it. It seems really effective and functional. It's the number term. one reason that other countries don't trust the United States. And thus begins uh, one of the most corrupt, torrid, uh, nasty presidential terms in the history of the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's where people start rightly saying that President Harding is a very open to and vulnerable to corruption. Uh, this really stresses Harding out. Uh, historians speculate it may have been a factor that led to his early death. He got a heart attack in August of 1923. And so on August 3rd, 1923, at like 2.30 in the morning, Calvin Coolidge gets the official word that he is now president of the United States. And he goes to his dad because his dad. The the shopkeep, the humble mm -hmm, shopkeep mm -hmm. from Vermont. Yeah. His dad, like me, is a notary public. And so his dad (laughs) says. Wait a humble brag. (laughs) It's easy. You should do it. It's fun. You get a stamp. So uh, uh, his own father administers the oath of office and Coolidge takes his uh, takes his oath with the family Bible. It might seem weird, and it might seem a little bit ad hoc, but we have to remember, then as now, 
there always has to be a precedent as immediately as possible. So they can't hold up to like travel outside of Vermont. They can't schedule a day. It has to happen now. I think that's pretty dramatic, honestly. It is. You know, and Coolidge, um, he, again, he had a little something for everybody. Um, as he ascended to the role of the president, he, he realized that there was uh, some damage control that needed to be done, you know, sort of rebrand this administration to differentiate them from the corruption of the Harding administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he really inherited kind of a pile of crap. That he yeah. had to mold into a beautiful sculpture. I don't okay, do with that image what you want. <laughs> it's a real messy bowl of spaghetti. And he does have to bring order out of this chaos and skullduggery. So he's again a very tenacious guy. He's the kind of guy who doesn't make a big to-do. He just does what he believes it should be done. And so it comes to pass. I'm saying, and so it comes to pass a lot more often because I I feel like that raises our dramatic stakes. And so it comes to pass that Coolidge one by one starts rooting out the sources of corruption and making the executive branch of the U.S. government a model of integrity. And this is in his own image. He says, look, you know, America – We might not agree on everything, but I will deal with you and the fate of our nation in good faith. I am someone you can trust. Yeah. And he also, you know, like like I I keep saying, he kind of had a little something for everybody. Um, He was determined to maintain this sense of the old moral uh, and economic ways, not representing some sort of massive shift that would freak people out. Because America was actually doing pretty well. And, you know, one thing that freaks people out when there's a new president coming in is like, are you going to raise our taxes? Are you going to do something that's going to affect my money? You know, I never realized why politics becomes so much more important to older people. It's because they're looking out for their money, man. And so it comes to pass. I'm not letting go of it. It comes to pass that Coolidge has to explore some of his own moral boundaries. He says, we're not going to use the economic power, the federal government, to stop this boom. We're not going to uh, likewise ameliorate the depressed condition of certain industries. We're going to treat everybody equally. And so his first message to Congress, December 1923, it's a very weird year for him. He says, we're going to be more isolationist in our foreign policy. We're going to cut taxes. Uh, We're going to provide some limited aid to farmers and uh, humble farmers, humble farmers. Guys, check out Rebel Moon. It's important to realize that one guy's a humble farmer. Uh, and so it's literally all I know about the movie. Right. right. It's it's an important point that occurs every 10 minutes. But uh, the the thing is, these moves are incredibly popular throughout the United States because no one knows the Great Depression is on the way. So with Coolidge kind of representing the strong arm of justice and and the antithesis of the corruption of what the Harding uh, administration came to be represented as, um, he also brought with him this kind of return to a more conservative fiscal policy uh, that has, has been, I believe, is still, I mean, who knows these days, sort of the foundation of what the Republican Party went on to sort of evolve into. Yeah, Coolidge 
also, again, is functioning as a, a thing to be held up in contrast to political opponents because right. the, the Democratic Party then was not the Democratic Party of today. The Ku Klux Klan had a lot of influence in them. And so uh, in the election of 1920. Four, Coolidge wins by a huge margin. He gets like 382 electoral votes. The Democratic candidate, John W. Davis, only gets 136. And they kept the same, they kept the same idea all throughout this presidency. The idea that this was a guy who would hear you out. This guy was steady. He was an anchor for America. He would keep calm. They used the slogan, keep it cool with Coolidge. Get it? In 1924. And Noel, you brought up a great point off off mic. We've talked so much about this guy's physical and um, social kind of like his vibe. So uh, you found a great clip for us to play of the actual Calvin Coolidge, right? Yeah, it's great. It's DeForest Phonofilms present President Coolidge taken on the White House grounds. This would be the kind of thing would probably be played before the feature, you know, in a movie house, like the the newsreels or whatever. But I love the the framing and this whole like production sort of <laughs> uh, plate, I guess, at the beginning of it. Yeah, he's he's humble. He's got a pince nez. Uh, he's, he's holding his notes. And we're just going to play a quick clip from 1924. Costs of government are all assessed upon the people. This means that the farmer is doomed to provide a certain amount of the money farmer? out of the sale of his produce, no matter how low the price to pay his taxes. The manufacturer, the professional man. He's going through his notes. The clerk must do the same from their income. The, the dubbing leaves earner, something to be desired. Often at a higher rate when compared with his earning. Oh, I'm falling asleep, guys. I think we can stop it here. Yeah, I think we can stop it any moment. Well, the funny thing, I mean, this what he's talking about here directly pertains to, you know, the policies that we're talking about. But also, wow, this guy roasted his senior class? Yeah. Again. I mean, oh, yeah, the, he roasted he, bad. Yeah. He, I, I don't he know took him to the handle, dogs and back. I can handle a roast from he, this guy. He's a... He he is doing though. I I love that example because uh, he is speaking to particular demographics of the United States, and he is saying, "Look, I get it. This the the, the government could be better to farmers, things like that." Right? He's speaking directly to the people, and this is tremendously reassuring. We could argue to the American public, uh, but. When he said this, uh, he also he was not he was not a fan of like impulsive radical decisions. And our boy loved a veto. He vetoed so much stuff all the time. He vetoed like fifty bills, I think. And, and two of those, by the way, were uh, far were relief for farmers bills. Right. Um, I mean, he he was shrewd. You know, this seems to go back to what his, his his pappy taught him back in the old home front. You know, keeping keeping the the family store. Um, this idea of prudence, you know, with money and and of of being a good steward of resources. Uh, Walter Lippmann, journalist and a media critic, uh, and also he's listed as an amateur philosopher, which I would like to think we all are. Um, Walter Lippmann had this to say. He actually refers to, to President Coolidge as having a sort of political genius. And he says, this active inactivity, 
suits the mood and certain of the needs of the country admirably. It suits all the business interests which want to be let alone. And it suits all those who have become convinced that the government in this country has become dangerously complicated and top-heavy. Small Mm -hmm. government, small government. Also the art of frantically and importantly doing nothing. Which, uh, yeah, what did he call it? Active inactivity. We've seen That's some awesome. of that. We've I seen that. some of that. So, uh, this is where he starts to get famous. He starts to get known for his taciturn nature, his, his lack of verbosity. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Coolidge is seen as a kind of remote negative president, but at the same time, he's seen as the most accessible because he will go to an interview with you. He just won't expound very much outside of his like scheduled White House law and speeches or talks mm-hmm. with Congress. He's like, uh, what is it? Uh, <laughs> he's in an interview. He's talking to another uh, noted uh, literary man of the day, Bernard Baruch. And he says, look, a lot of times I'll be in these interviews and I'll just sit through them. He specifically says, well, Baruch, many times I say only yes or no to people. Even that is too much. It oh, winds them yes. up for 20 minutes more. So he's basically, he's like saying, look, if I give these folks anything, they just keep going. They're like a dog with a bone. It reminds me of when people ask David Lynch about the meaning of his films oh, or like boy. specifically Eraserhead, where he's just like, no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's not, I'm not going to tell you. What do you, f- what do you, yourself. what do you think about the music in your films, David? You're like, well, I, uh, I do. I do I think do. about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's very important. I like red curtains. I, like I love his album. David Lynch. Show. Oh, I like his album too. Crazy clown town, mm-hmm. crazy clown time. <laughs> so, so, uh, we mentioned how he gets the nickname silent Cal. Uh, it's, it, it goes back to, of course, that Washington DC hostess. She's a socialite. And she says, Oh, you must talk to me, Mr. President. I made a bet today that I could get more than two words out of you. And Coolidge replies, you lose. So his policies though, I think this gives you a hard time too, Max. His policies are conservative. Uh, he is very pro-business. He is very much not a Eugene V. Debs. And there is something impressive, low-key impressive for his international policy because the Coolidge administration is not rocking a lot of tectonic plates or cultural boundaries, but they are pretty competent in terms of what best benefits the people of America. They're focusing on internal growth. Uh, They are perhaps, you could argue, a bit too isolationist in different places. Like Calvin Coolidge says, no way are we joining the League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations. He's like, I'm an American president. Beat me here, Max. I do shit for Americans. Oh, and we should mention that he did have a vice president as well, Charles G. Dawes. That's right. Dawes. What do we have to say about Dawes? He received the Nobel Prize for helping Germany. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Go on, Max. What else did this Dawes fellow do? So Dawes actually, because they were were not involved in international stuff, but when they did, they were actually good at it. Uh, Dawes helped Germany uh, meet its war debt obligations. You remember, they're they're paying everybody off. Which were huge and and indeed part of the economic factor leading to World War II ultimately. Yeah, Great Depression, then World War II. Uh, so he helped with that. And they also had this guy named uh, Secretary of State, actually, Frank B. Kellogg, who uh, was very influential in this pack called the Kellogg Brand Pack. I, we figured mm-hmm. out how to say it at one point because we, yeah. we have an episode about this. It is, we it do. Is, it's titled something along the lines of When They Outlawed War. So basically it outlawed this we're taking your land type of war, which is still – you know, now whenever countries go to war, they come up with some fake reason like Russia has with like, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That time everyone tried to outlaw war, uh, January 6th, 2022. Complete coincidence. So 
no presidency lasts forever by design, you know, and and you can look to the administration of FDR to see why that uh, can become unpopular and dangerous. So let's go to 1928. Our boy, uh, our boy, the cool cat Cal is pretty popular still, you know, some warts, some bumps along the way, but he's up for re-election and there is no law at this time that limits the amount of times you can run for president. There was sort of what we could call, uh, I hate that I hate to use this phrase, but there was like a gentleman's agreement or house rule of U.S. politics that you should only run for president twice. Ah, yeah. Is that is that more of like a like you said like a decorum thing? At this or, point, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. But now it's it's official. It's gone. now it's yeah. super official. Yeah, it's yeah. good. I'm glad. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. And he could have run again if he had wanted to, based on that sort of social norm of the time. Um, but he just was d- kind of done with it. I think he uh, felt like he'd accomplished all he'd wanted to do and wanted to maybe step out of the public eye for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to that excellent work by David Greenberg, we know this. Uh, he was pretty low key and abrupt uh, with his announcement. He said, Look, I'm not going to seek re election with one statement. I do not choose to run for president in 1928. The first people to find out about this are reporters who are traveling with him during his summer vacation in 1927. And he just get, he doesn't even publicly say it. He hands it to them on little strips of paper. It's like he gave them a very specific and weird fortune cookie. <laughs> and, and so people like the word spreads. And people, including his family members, have no idea what's going on. Someone asks his wife, Grace, what she thinks about the announcement. And she goes, what announcement? Uh, And there's one story, a little bit saucy. We don't know if it's totally true, but according to one kind of cinematic story, he hands these reporters these slips of paper and then immediately, kid you not, hops in a rowboat and starts rowing away before Aww. they can say anything. Row, row, row your boat. That's Calvary. how I was taught this story in AP U.S. history, oh, and I choose to believe brag. it that way. I learned, I, I learned it from my AP teacher, but uh, she said, she said, I'm telling you the version of the story that I like. I'm going to say it right now. Considering this guy, he was actually pretty into physical fitness too. He's a, he's he was a, a swimmer. He would like swim naked and yeah. stuff. Yeah, the, him rowing away in a boat would seem like something very relaxing to him. That's so like I a slow it. fade, man. It's like Homer disappearing backwards into the bushes. You know, it feels like Wes Anderson. Yeah. has made this <laughs> film. It just takes so long to like it, you see them for so long on the horizon. You know, it's like slowly backing away. I like that. I like this Cal- Calvin Coolidge's vibe. And so uh, Calvin Coolidge kind of retires from public life, sort of, because he writes an autobiography. He writes articles for magazines of note. He has a nationally syndicated column for a newspaper for a while called Thinking Things Over with Calvin Coolidge, uh, because he's at that point in his career where he feels like he has to put his name in the title of everything. Anyway, I walked down the street from that one. Uh, He lives his life until January 5th, 1933. It's just after lunch. Uh, He usually takes a two-hour nap after lunch at this time in his life, but on January 5th, he he collapses in his bedroom, and later uh, doctors conclude he has died from 
heart failure. Uh, His passing comes right before the inauguration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, as I mentioned, is the reason we have hard limits on presidential terms in the modern day. But we didn't want to end on a total down note. So instead of closing with that cinematic look at his rowboating career to syndicated columnist switch, we've got to tell you about his presidential pets because we did an episode on this. And this had to have appeared in that episode, right? Um, he loved dogs and cats. He had several by the name of Climber, Tiger, and Blackie, which is maybe a little bit problematic now, but it is what it is. Uh, not sure which was the dog or which was the cat in that uh, in that uh, trio. I only did not name the dog Tiger. You that know what? Bugs me. Tiger makes sense for the cat. I don't know. Right? With this guy's this guy's sense of humor, though, I, I know. I know. Doing it he He's a walking McSweeney's. I get it. <laughs> but he also had birds, uh, and uh, most importantly, and delightfully, if you're a fan of uh, something that the internet just gives beautifully now, uh, is raccoon content. Um, he had a raccoon named Rebecca. Trash I think I personally, Panda. yeah, I follow like six different raccoon Instagram it. accounts. They got it. human hands, man. They're it's weird, but kids. also it's also cute. He got lion cubs too. That's wild. Lion cubs. He got those as a gift, actually, from the mayor of Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and the White House uh, named the cubs. I guess they sort of were almost like soft ambassadors named the cubs Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. All right. Well, not every wow. joke is going to land. Wow. Right? They probably okay. called him Budgie and Taxi. You know how pet they names so. work. But he also had his sort of flagship pet, which was a collie uh, by the name of Rob Roy, which was a historical war hero, I believe, uh, in Scotland, uh, The inventor of dubstep. Okay, fair enough. But also a delightful cocktail. Rebecca, the raccoon, though, was less of Calvin's special guy uh, and more of Grace's, in fact. You can find a lot of photos of them posing together at the White House. Very domesticated, so much so that one day the Coolidge family said, we should get Rebecca a friend. Let's get her another raccoon. We'll name it Reuben. Get it? Alliteration. They're cute. However, Reuben was much uh, less domesticated and much more, he's, he's more of a street raccoon. You know what I mean? He was for the streets. He was for the dumpsters. But this is this is for history. This is a, a pretty good look at Calvin Coolidge. There's a lot of stuff we didn't get to, which I think will show up in one of our forthcoming episodes, stuff that got left over. We love it. Yeah, well, that's for sure. And also, in the meantime, if you want to uh, read more about his life, following suit with his kind of uh, soft-spoken demeanor, um, his autobiography is, I believe, one of the shortest in presidential history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a series of haiku. It is actually super short, but again, a man of few words. The words he chose did have tremendous impact even today in 2024. I almost said 2023. Oh, geez. Uh, When did we start this show? What was it? uh, 2017? 2017? I guess that's right. We talked about that the other day. We've been doing this for over... What's five, six years? 17, well, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, Later this year will be seven years. Seven years. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Oh, I the Faustian bargain. The Faustian bargain's coming due. Uh, shout out to anybody who gets that weird joke. Uh, I, I just want to say the time has flown. So grateful to all our fellow ridiculous historians. And Noel, Max, I'm, I'm so grateful to you guys. We were talking about this a little bit off air, but this is just one of my favorite things to do. And we hope you enjoy it as well, folks. 
Oh, the feeling is mutual. I can definitely speak for both myself and Max. Even though Max occasionally does a facepalm, I think they're good-natured facepalms, and he's facepalming out of love. I always like to think maybe his hand just smells really good. It's possible. <laughs> Especially the cast hand. Especially Those the have cast a tendency hand. of um, <laughs> getting a little ripe. Um, but no, truly, I, I feel the exact same way. Uh, love you both uh, to death, and uh, can't wait till we reconvene. Uh, I was thinking this might be a two-parter, but I think we 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 in the spirit of Calvin himself uh, exercise the spirit of brevity. And that is so appreciate that. Yeah, a little nice. longer for a one-parter, but I think it was the sure, there was no we, other way to do. We it. had a lot of stuff to do. I joked beforehand that I'm like, I think at an episode about Calvin Coolidge, we should make sure to go long on it. Yeah. So, and, and also, you know how it is. You got to kill your darlings. I am chock full of dumb facts about baseball hats. I'm hoping they'll fade by by the time we record our next episode. Big, big thanks to super producer and uh, research associate for this episode, Mr. Max Williams, Alex Williams, real life brother of the show and uh, biological brother of Alex who composed this slap and bop. It's true. Thanks to Chris Frostiotis here in spirit, Eve's Jeffco, to the whole pantheon of ridiculous historians that came before. We hope you guys have a really great weekend uh, and life. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.